Money FM 89.3, the best of your money. Money and me on your money, only on Money FM 89.3. Welcome to Money and Me. I'm Michelle Martin. So you want to invest in the green economy and you want to know what is the reality of progress towards net zero from a ground up perspective. My next guest says the green economy is possible and profitable. He's the author of a new book. It's called Climate Capitalism, Winning the Global Race to Zero Emissions. The book will be published 12 October. So we now have an exclusive preview with Akshat Rati. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Nice to be here. Good morning. Thanks for coming by. So you're a senior climate reporter for Bloomberg News. Uh, you also host a weekly climate podcast, Zero, which talks to people battling climate change. And in the latest episode, you say that solar energy contributes to 4% of the world's energy currently. Um, so let me ask you a general question. Are incremental changes to global climate problems adequate to the task at hand? It's a good question. There is no other way but incremental changes that add up to real big changes. And solar is a very good story for that. So 10 years ago, solar was nowhere. It was 0.1% of the grid. It's 4% of the grid today. So that's a 40x growth. That's a lot. And so where we go next is how to build solar to be something like 25, 30%, maybe even 50% of the grid. And that's something solar analysts think can happen. All right. I want to get to the big picture of your book, Climate Capitalism. Uh, doesn't the pursuit of profit and economic growth within the capitalist system contribute so much to environmental degradation? So what exactly is the link that your book makes between climate change and the capitalist system? It certainly does. Uh, there is no doubt that uncontrolled push towards economic growth and profits is key to the problem uh, behind uh, climate change. Now, it's not just profits and economic growth, though. Because the thing that we are not taking into consideration is the economic costs of the pollution that we are creating. Currently, in most parts of the world, it's free to pollute. However, society does bear the cost of that pollution. And so the fundamental problem that has driven climate change is not capitalism per se, but how we use capitalism to ensure that costs of all kinds are included in the economic system. So in his book, People, Power, Profits, Joseph Stiglitz, a noted economist who's also been on this show, uh, notes how the American economy tilts towards big business and few corporations have come to dominate entire sectors of the economy, contributing to inequality, slow growth. And he says this is how the financial industry has managed to write its own regulations and tech companies have accumulated reams of personal data, for example, with little oversight. So why is this book so confident that big business will be able to tame its own excesses and make sure that climate works for us? That's also true in the energy business. The oil industry has been a very powerful force in trying to shape politics uh, and use uh, the profits it has gained over the past century to try and shape regulations to its benefits, but also create a disinformation campaign in the 90s that has caused us to slow down action on climate change. But what this book makes the case for and why it's confident that businesses can change is that there are examples littered across the world where businesses have changed. So where it's confident is that if you have people inside companies and investors who own the business 
who want to reshape the business, they can do it because others have done it. Of course, none of this is going to happen on its own. It requires agency both on the parts of the owners of the business and the people who run the business, and it requires support from government to happen. So none of this is an easy transformation. Just the good thing is it's already happening. And you're on the ground watching it unfold. Talk to us about the successful examples of companies that are making significant progress in their attempt to challenge climate change. So one of the chapters in the book is about wind power. Now, wind turbines are something that pretty much everybody has seen. They're growing in size, so it's very hard to ignore them (laughs) if they're growing in number and in size. But one company that I feature in the book is called Orsted. Uh, Now, Orsted today is the world's largest deployer of offshore wind power. Um, But not long ago, just a little more than 10 years ago, it was called DONG, or Danish Oil and Natural Gas. And its creation back in the 70s was a creation of government trying to get away from the energy crisis uh, that had happened in the 70s where OPEC countries had taken oil away uh, from Europeans and Americans. And European countries wanted their own energy. So they created these national champions to go out and make oil and natural gas. But over the years, as uh, the energy transformation happened, the Danish government realized that it needed its national champions to also get into renewable energy. So it was the government that forced, in a way, Danish oil and natural gas to start building offshore wind all the way back in the 90s as an experiment. Uh, And that experiment, when it came into the 2000s and it was facing uh, a European energy market where it needed to find a niche, it realized the way it could do it is through doubling down on offshore wind. And it wasn't an overnight transformation. They created a plan in 2008 that by 2020, maybe we'll have 20% of our energy mix to be wind and 80% will be coal and oil and natural gas, all of that in their mix. Yeah. But the transformation happened so much more quickly that by the end of this decade, they will be 100% renewable. Incredible government-led initiative. Are they listed? They are listed now. And uh, the Danish government is still a majority owner, but uh, it is a publicly owned company and has been for some time. Great example there from Europe. I wonder if you've seen any clear differences in terms of East and West or regional differences in terms of approach or progress when it comes to companies dealing with climate change. A very good example is the the way China has created essentially the electric car revolution. Now, if you sit in the West, the one name you think about when you think about EVs is Elon Musk. But it's true he's contributed to the revolution. But if there is somebody who's contributed even more is a name that most people don't know. And his name is Wang Gang. And he was the science minister uh, in China from 2009 to 2017. An auto engineer by training, he did a PhD in Germany, he worked at Audi, was the head of production there. But at that time, this was early, uh, late 90s, early 2000, he convinced the Chinese government that used to come and visit, was trying to bring Audi to come to China, convinced the government that, look, if China is going to consume as much energy and create as much lifestyle uh, access to its pe- for its people as the West has it cannot continue to use oil at the same level. The U.S. at the time was using 20 barrels of oil per person. China was using one. And so he made the case that you need new energy vehicles. He wasn't fixed on batteries or hydrogen. He just wanted something that is an alternative to oil. And that convincing 
got the government to spend 60 billion US dollars over that nine year period that he was the minister. And that kind of upfront investment that is stable is done in a capitalistic system, even if the politics of that kind of investment is very different from how it would happen in the West. That stable investment led to the creation of hundreds of electric car companies, many battery companies, and today the world's leader in production of EVs and production of batteries is China. Let me put you on the spot here. Who's winning the EV race, China or the US? Currently, it is China. BYD, which is the Chinese automaker, is the largest maker of EVs in the world. China is the largest market for cars, period, but also the largest market for electric cars. And it's setting its own goals, which it wanted to reach something like 20% of sales uh, of EVs, of total sales by 2025. It crossed that threshold last year. How's India doing? So India is blocking a $1 billion bid by uh, BYD to set up an EV factory there. Um, Foreign direct investment in India, we know, um, doesn't typically require approval for the automobile sector. But in this case, Delhi is saying, hey, the national security concerns. How is India doing in the race? It is a difficult, much more difficult challenge for India. So India in the race uh, would say renewables on solar, India is doing quite well. Uh, It's building a lot of solar. It does depend on imports for its solar panels, but it's starting to build a local manufacturing base for solar panels as well. Mm. Um, And so that is already on the track to get to net zero. But where India is lacking is on EVs because India is a very price-sensitive environment. India also, unlike China, doesn't have quite the economic heft to be able to provide huge incentives to industry to be able to build out a manufacturing base. So, you know, trying to block China a bit from BYD is not surprising. India and China are not particularly at very good relations uh, and haven't been for a few years now. Um, and so there is a f- bit of friction around technology, especially, that the two countries don't want to collaborate But the good thing again here is that it doesn't need to depend on Chinese EV makers anymore. Because of what China has done, every automaker in the world is now making EVs. So you take any Western company, is it an American or a European, they're spending tens of billions of dollars transforming their business. And if BYD can't build a factory in India, I'm sure Ford or Volkswagen would want to come. In terms of sectors, our listenership, mainly investors right now, where should they be looking at in terms of, you know, the, the, the big macro trends? So currently, it's, it's a high interest period. And so where you invest it will really depend on how much return you're going to get back. One tricky part is that renewable energy industry uh, tends to not be as profitable as the oil and gas industry. And that is one reason why we still get so much investments going into the oil and gas industry. And especially now when you know oil and gas prices are still pretty high, uh, they've fallen over the past six months or so, uh, but generating plenty of profit for those companies. Uh, whereas renewable energy companies are having to deal with inflation problems, with you know uh, both energy prices going up, but also the price of steel going up, price of copper going up, all crucial materials that go into making renewables. It's not. It doesn't seem like it's a a good time to invest in those companies. But if you're an investor for the long term, 
what we've seen over the past decade, if you just compare the returns on oil and gas companies versus renewable energy companies, renewable energy companies over the long term do pay out more. So if you're a long-term investor and you're seeing uh, where you should put your money, where you should park your money, it is an investment that both aligns with good returns over the long term and doing good for the world. Wise words. In your book, Akshat, we're speaking with Akshat Ratti. His book is Climate Capitalism. It's not yet out on shelves, so you're getting an exclusive preview. We're thrilled to have him with us here in Singapore. His book will be launched in October. In your book, you say it is not cheaper to save the world than to destroy it. Um, Can you share some examples of why you think this? So climate change is really an economic problem because what it does to the planet is it reduces agricultural productivity, it increases human migration, it causes all kinds of disruption on supply chains. Um, I mean, we are sitting here in Singapore on the equator, but look at what's happening in Europe right now with the heat wave and uh, Greek tourists who are having to be thrown out from their holidays because there are wildfires all around them. So the costs of climate change are huge. And frankly, we do not know how big they can be because the calculations around how much climate change could cause an economic devastation are all estimations with lots of error bars. But climate action, which of course requires some amount of upfront investment, Mm -hmm. can help avoid that economic cost. So the study that I cite in the book says if we are able to meet our climate goals, that is keep temperatures below 1.5 degrees Celsius compared to pre-industrial period, the world would be $100 trillion richer. And that's one estimation based on our finite way in which we can make these estimations. Um, And so that's why it is now cheaper to save the world than destroy it. So the magnitude of financial risk when we talk about climate change is not yet properly understood because it's vaguely defined? Correct. It is vaguely defined. It's uh, the parameters through which you estimate it is not very well understood. And the trouble is the large economic bodies that really run the financial system haven't quite absorbed it. So everything from all the way from the central bank to a consumer bank needs to understand that climate change is going to have an impact on the financial system. And they're starting to do it. So there is a group called uh, NGFS, which is a group of central bankers that now realize that climate change is a macro financial problem that central banks have to consider because their mandate is to ensure financial stability. And in a world that is becoming more volatile, it's their duty to ensure that they can incorporate how climate action could be beneficial uh, all the way to the level of a Federal Reserve. Akshat Rati is my guest. He is the author of a new book called Climate Capitalism. It will hit shelves pretty soon, October, so we can look forward to it. How are we doing in terms of the globe making progress towards net zero? So the news, if you just look at emissions right now, is not good. Emissions declined in 2020 when the pandemic hit, of course, because economic activity declined. And then it's gone up in 2021 and in 2022, when really it should keep going down. And so that feels like, oh my God, we are headed in the wrong direction. And that's true. But what is missed in this debate is that 
we have shaved off a lot of emissions that could have happened. So uh, two pivot points in my book are the 1973 oil crisis um, and the 2015 Paris Agreement. Now, the oil crisis created a bunch of uh, interest and investment in trying to come up with alternative energy. Those investments made 50 years ago are now paying back in cheap solar panels and cheap wind turbines and even cheap batteries, which were invented in the 70s. But those inventions could not have given the benefits that we are getting today without political will, policy support and government direction. And all of that followed after the Paris Agreement, where every country on the planet signed on to a climate target. And so it is what you are seeing between Paris Agreement in 2015 and 2023 today. We have shaved off a lot more emissions than would have been in the atmosphere. And so uh, the warming that we could have seen would have been possible to have been four or five degrees Celsius by the end of the century, which would have been catastrophic. Mm. Now we are headed towards three degrees Celsius, which is still pretty bad, Mm -hmm. but it's nowhere the hellscape that could have been five degrees Celsius. So we have to learn to live in this two-track world now, where because climate change and global warming will continue to happen, the more we continue to emit emissions, which we will for some time, the more the impacts will get worse. But that should not distract us from the fact that we have made progress to try to reduce emissions, we have the technologies to scale up to reduce emissions faster, and we can do it if we get all these three key people, policy and technology, these forces aligned to reach net zero. Absolutely fascinating to hear about the progress that you're seeing on the ground. I know you're on a world tour, it sounds like uh, you've been... Were you in India? And well, then... I'm, go- I'm in Singapore. I'm going to Australia. I'll be going to India and then back to the UK. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for popping by and sharing more about your book with us. Thanks for having me. Akshat Rathi, author of the upcoming book titled Climate Capitalism, Winning the Global Race to Zero Emissions. This is Money and Me. I'm Michelle Martin. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.